by humanity at birth. And then for those of us who have had the incredible privilege of receiving Jesus Christ, we are bound in spirit for eternity. So, Lord, what a, what a joy this is to be here gathered as believers in the same room <clears throat> without persecution, without fear. And, Lord, uh, our simple request is this, that you glorify yourself this morning through your words and that you bring something to us this morning that can challenge us um, to grow and to mature in our faith. For it's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. We've been in the book of Luke, of course. Those of you who have been with us for over a year will know we're in the book of Luke. And I don't see any end in, in view right now. So we're just going to keep uh, working our way through the book of Luke. The scriptures you have on your scripture sheet this morning are the core scriptures. So feel free to follow along with those. We want to encourage you, even though you have scripture sheets, to bring some form of a Bible. And what I mean by that is uh, it may be electronic, it may be on your phone, you know, it may be in your retina for all I know anymore. Uh, or, you know, paper's good. Paper's good too. Just, we don't want the scripture sheet to become a, a deterrent to you bringing your Bibles. Uh, so I encourage you in that. We're going to dig right in. Last week, um, we uh, talking about some very interesting things. Let me just read last week's scripture um, to you. Uh, but before we, we do that... We're going to read this morning's scripture so you can follow along here. Luke eighteen fifteen through 30 says this, Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child, not enter it. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, well, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So here we have a continuation of the lesson we had last week. Jesus taught in a parable last week as far as our study is concerned. So let me read that. It's, it's pretty brief, and then we'll get into the, uh, to the details. So last week we read this, Luke 18, 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven and beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So in a nutshell, 
we have this well-dressed, well-educated, and feared leader of Israel strutting into the temple to pray. He made a complete spectacle of himself as a despised tax collector waited his turn a few steps away. And the tax collector beat his breast as a sign of regret and guilt and prayed with his head bowed to the ground. And this was the, scri- the scripture, the, the, uh, the stinger, if you will. I tell you, this man, tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Translation. Those who reject Christ will be humbled at the judgment seat of Christ. For those who receive Christ here, they will be exalted in the kingdom. They won't go to the judgment seat of Christ. Go to the kingdom. So this morning we're looking at three things. Some of you are very proud of me. I got three points again. Number one. Christ, the champion of the innocent. Second point is Christ, the judge of the self-sufficient. And finally, Christ, the savior of the faithful. Now notice, all of these things eventually end up into salvation. Christ is really teaching salvation through these parables, for the most part. So Christ, the companion of the innocent. Now what we are about to read is not a parable. Jesus is teaching And there are uh, Pharisees there. It's a mixed group of people. His apostles are with him or his disciples are with him. And there are just common everyday folk like you and me. They are there as well. And Jesus taught through this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. But now we're to a point where the reality kind of intervenes and interrupts. And it's wonderful. 15 says this, uh, Luke 18, 15 says this. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, we can get some indication as to the importance of these scriptures. Two things are happening. It's included in three of the four Gospels, the same event. is included in three of the four Gospels. And the phrase, even infants, tells us that Luke is making an extraordinary point. Isn't it kind of amazing? This phrase, even infants, I have read this scripture so many times, and I've just kind of passed over that, and I thought... Oh, even infants. But there's something to this. There's something to this. We're going to study this part of our lesson by looking in the 10th chapter of Mark as well. So if you have some device... Sorry, this keeps cutting in. If you have some device that you can flip over to Mark 10, you can do that as well. We won't spend much time there. But they were bringing in even infants that that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them, which is a very intense reprimand. So in that culture, you were valued by your works. The Jewish culture was based upon the law. And so as you grew and your works were become known, you began began to gain value in the community. And you began to earn your right to speak. And since children were not old enough to acknowledge and thus strive to keep these laws, their contributions to society were not assessed until they were older. Now the point is that in important matters, children had no influence or value. They were not considered to be worthy as part of the equation when making religious or social decisions because they had no record of completed works. But Jesus disagreed with this. They were obviously valuable to Jesus because we know that there were healings involving children and he raised one little girl from the dead. 
So Jesus said, this isn't, this isn't right here. This is part of the law that you're misunderstanding. The same is true today, though, is it not? As a matter of fact, the value of unborn children is judged to be at about zero by many people. We live in a sophisticated society. It seems like the more sophisticated the culture, the less value children have. I'm not saying this to be cruel or to be harsh or to open any old wounds. The reason I'm saying this is because we may look back at the culture where Jesus is rebuking his disciples and we think, well, of course those children should have been able to sit on Christ's knee. And yet our culture does not even give them a chance to be present necessarily. Not only are unborn children not valued, but in general... Children are oftentimes within the equation of the budget of the family. It's too expensive to have three children. We're going to stop at two. <clears throat> Some of you may say, you're getting into personal territory. I know. I know. And this is between you and God. All I'm saying is, as a nation, as a culture, children have lost their value to the future of our society. You know, I really love babies. Uh, I can kind of relate to Jesus in this area. Every other area, I can't really relate to him at all because he's a really good guy. And he's holy, by the way. But I love babies. I love just to, you know, they feel so good. And you look at them and, you know, they're usually drooling, kind of like when I get older. (laughs) But on babies, that's cute. And yet, our, our culture has decided that the value is less than the trouble. So when R- Luke wrote, even infants, the original language means literally babies. So they were bringing babies to Jesus. Now, there may have been some other children along with the family, but they were bringing babies to Jesus for a specific purpose. We have another version of this incident in Mark 10, 14. When he saw that the disciples and apostles rebuked the parents of these babies, it says in Mark 10, 14, but when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, which means pained or angry, or here's a good word, vexed. By the way, that's not a curse from a witch. It means irritated or annoyed. Jesus was annoyed with his apostles. When they had that, when, when they, they stepped in front of these parents and said, look, don't bother the Messiah. No, they didn't say Messiah because they didn't get that. Don't bother Jesus. Jesus' response to his disciples when he saw them rebuke the parents of those babies, he rebuked them. And he said, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. Why would Jesus have said this? Why would he break from the cultural norm to make this statement? And he tells us why. The very next phrase is this. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Now think about the weight of that. These little babies. He's saying, do not hinder them from coming to me. For these babies have inherited the kingdom of heaven. They are heaven's citizens right now. We'll get to more of that. And some of us might think, well, this was just kind of a a poetic statement about the general innocence of children that Jesus was making. It wasn't. John MacArthur believes that Jesus is actually talking about eternal security of babies. He comes to this conclusion by way of the following. Jesus rebukes his disciples by saying, Do not hinder them, the parents. 
This was a strong and embarrassing command to the apostles. And why should they not hinder them? For such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Jesus did not say to such belong the kingdom of heaven if they have been dedicated, if they have been baptized, or even if they were chosen. He is saying that the kingdom of heaven already belongs to them. Heaven already belongs to these infants. There's a scripture found in 2 Samuel 12. First and Second Samuel are two of my favorite books in the Bible. It's just such a dramatic reading. It tells of King David pleading for the life of a son that was born to Bathsheba. It was an adulterous affair. And Bathsheba's husband was a Hittite. And David was home in his castle while the armies of Israel were out fighting. And Bathsheba sent word to David that I am pregnant with your son. How could she possibly have known that? Uh, Her husband was off to war. And so David's solution. Take Uzziah, which is Bathsheba's husband, and put him in the front lines of every battle. So he engineered the murder of Bathsheba's husband. And so, I have to be careful because this story is so wonderful. I'll go on, on into it. But anyway, Bathsheba gives birth to David's son before Solomon, right? And, da- and uh, David's, uh, God sent Nathan and said, God has lifted the verdict on your guilt uh, by the way, penalty for adultery was death. Nathan said, God has lifted your verdict, but the son you're going to have is going to die. The baby was born, and he was born ill. And for seven days, David was at this little baby's side, pleading with God, wearing ragged clothes, sackcloth, covering himself with ashes, pleading for the life of this little boy. On the seventh day, this little boy dies. And he gets up, and he goes and he bathes, and he puts on his fine clothing, and he begins praising God. And his servants said, we're confused. While the baby was still alive, You're begging God, you're in sackcloth and ashes, and you're grieving and you're crying. And yet when the baby dies, you rejoice. 2 Samuel 12, 22 says this. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. He knew where that little boy went. Heaven. And David said, I will go to him, but he will not come back to me. There's a stark difference here between another son of David and this little boy. The other son's name is Absalom. You need to read First and Second Samuel. This little boy by the name of Absalom grew up to be a horrible man. And when Absalom died, David never stopped grieving. Why? He knew. But that little baby, David was reunited with. So we see here David understood that his newborn son was with God in heaven the moment he died. David's heart turned from a heart of sorrow to a heart of joy. MacArthur believes that babies and small children are under what he calls an act of conditional grace. Now that's his phrase, not mine, and I'll let him own that. I already own enough phrases that I can't explain. But I know what he means. Does this mean that children are not born into sin? 
It doesn't mean that at all. As a matter of fact, they don't even have to be born into sin. They're conceived in sin. And we're born into sin. And we are guilty when God looks upon us of that sin. But there is a moment children begin to choose to disobey God, at which time they are accountable for those decisions. And the conditional grace is removed. We call that what? Age of accountability. Now, the reason I bring this up is because we believe that you are chosen. Okay? And so my question is, well, what does that have to do with being elected or chosen? And the answer is nothing. (laughs) It doesn't have anything to do with it. We're all born innocent in the, in the eyes of God, not because we do not sin, but because of His conditional grace. And He cares for us and He, he protects us. I don't, I don't want to say we were born innocent in the sight of God. We are secured by His conditional grace. I believe this is true. Then Jesus follows up with a statement in Luke and Mark. Um, Luke eighteen seventeen says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. He is holding these children up as an example of the degree of trust, faith, and innocence we must have to receive the kingdom of heaven through Jesus Christ. And finally, Mark 10, 16, And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. This was a tradition. This was part of the culture. The dad would take the baby in his arms And he would bless that little baby that he might grow up to be obedient to the law and to be an honorable man, honorable young lady, honorable man or woman, and to live in such a way that they bring glory to God and honor to the family name. So this was very common. But this is what Jesus did. He took them into his arms and he blessed them. So what did he bless them for? Salvation. And grace is beautiful. Can you picture him reaching out and taking those babies and gently pulling them to himself and snuggling them and blessing them? By the way, these would be the same arms that would be stretched out on a cross. In the same hands, it would be pierced with nails. And they would turn over tables in a courtyard and crack a whip. One final point concerning children. In a previous parable, Jesus used a tax collector as an example of someone the Pharisees would have considered to be unworthy. And here he is championing the cause of the innocent, the children, the babies who were recognized officially of having no real value in society. But Jesus took them. So first, the Pharisee in the parable, and now real life intervenes, and God says, it's, it's almost like Jesus saying, remember the, remember the parable of the Pharisees? Look at this. I'm going to hold this baby, and I'm going to bless him. And they are secure. But the larger point that he is making is he's removing all hope that anyone could ever enter heaven based upon their own works or level of righteousness. By the way, folks, salvation is impossible. Now, if we leave it there, we're in trouble. Point number two, Christ, the judge of the self-sufficient. So just as Jesus used infants... As an extreme example to represent the least of these, he now moves to a very successful businessman who is socially savvy and well-respected spiritual leader in his community. Now, many of us are familiar with this story. Luke 18, beginning with verse 18, says, And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And in Mark, we have a similar account of this event. Mark 10, 17 says, And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit 
eternal life. So this fellow asks the question that every evangelistic seminar has ever told you to try to get someone to ask. Good teacher, what must I do to be saved? I was sitting at a luncheon with a friend of mine who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. We've had conversations for the past three or four years. And each time I'm thinking, this isn't the right time to bring it up. He will ask a question that I'm thinking, this is the question. And the last time we met, he literally asked, then what must I do to be saved? And I'm thinking, hallelujah, Lord, here it is. And I explained and he goes, Look at this also. This man is wealthy. He's savvy. He's a leader in the local community, local church. Now, we, we, we've met these kind of people. Have you ever met the kind of people before that you start talking with them and you're thinking, you know, I have about another 97 seconds and I don't have anything in common with this man. Maybe less. He's just in a different world. But he asked the question, what must I do to be saved? See, that would send me in my memory to the four spiritual laws or the Roman road. If I could remember them well enough when I'm really under pressure. But per usual, Jesus does not do the obvious. He answers his question with a question. Luke 18, 19. You know, he says, good teacher. That's all it took for Jesus. And Jesus goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Why do you call me good? Jesus takes note of his use of the word good. And let's make sure we get the full picture here. The man is not at all like the Pharisee in the parable. He's not a jerk. He's not arrogant necessarily. He's not prideful necessarily. He's not talking down about other people or to other people. The Pharisee was despicable on every level. Self-righteous, arrogant, offensive. This man, what does he do? He runs up to Jesus and he kneels before him. And when addressing him, he used the word good to elevate him above the other teachers, which, by the way, he had to have had. And, of course, Jesus, knowing this, asked him, what is there about me in particular that makes you think I am good? This is a really important question. And then Jesus takes it a step further. No one is good except God alone. One. And without giving this man an opportunity to answer his question, he proceeds in a matter in a manner that, as far as I know, is not taught in any evangelistic outreach seminars. He begins to explain to him by questions why he's unworthy. Verse 20, you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And this man says, "Uh, all these I have kept from my youth. Jesus is so teaching law. This is an appropriate question. Part of the expectation of those who kept the law was that they would receive blessings proportionate to their obedience and offerings. So here's how it was connected. This man, wealthy, savvy, has respect in the neighborhood. He probably tithed, probably more than the Pharisee. And as a result of keeping the laws, and Jesus said, well, how about these laws? He said, I've kept all of those. And what's going through this man's mind is that's one of the reasons... God has taken such good care of me. It's called prosperity gospel. And yet, he was not fulfilled. He's a good man. He's wealthy. He's successful. 
savvy. He's tithing. He's kind. And God has set him up well. And yet he's not fulfilled. So we see this all the time, right? So he says, what must I do to be complete? I'm incomplete. So he phrases it this way, what must I do to have eternal life? Well, the term eternal life is connected to becoming like God and enjoying peace on earth. That's what eternal life was in that time. Luke 18, 22, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Your gifts and tithes are not enough. They are inadequate. You must sell it all and give the money to the poor and follow me. Okay, so we've heard this before. God knew what his idol was and all of those things. And he did, he, he did know what his idol was. And he was hitting him where it hurt. But reading between the lines a bit, he was not to give his riches to his family or the synagogue. He was to distribute it to the poor. And here is his response. But when he heard these things, he became very sad. Why? For he was extremely rich. You know, there have been many times in my life when I've worked and worked and worked and worked to achieve something that I truly believed was within God's will for me. And indeed, what what God had called me to do, no one could dissuade me from my goals. A significant part of my life, as well as the lives of my family, was dedicated to these things. And yet at some point, God made it abundantly clear that they were not to be. Not meaning my family. The goals I had were not to be. What I believed God had called me to was not what he had called me to. Now, some of you are very, very kind and very, very supportive of people. say, well, now listen, you don't know that. Yes, I do. I do know that. Now, he salvaged it, and he used it. There's nothing wrong with letting someone say, I missed it. Let them say that. I missed it. By the grace of God, he still used it. But I told you there was a a sadness in this man. That's what the, the Bible said. I had a sadness. It was hard to release some of those things. I can honestly say that there has never been one failure or disappointment that over the course of time I did not eventually praise God for. How sweet is the knowledge that God is sovereign in His plans for us even when it grieves Him on our behalf. He is sovereign in His plans. You may take a detour. Someone may take a detour for you and take you with them. It's okay. God knew all of that. Then Jesus spoke perhaps some of his most famous words. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now here we go. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now every time we hear that, we look at a rich person. And we go... Glad I'm not you. Are we really? Okay, we look at a rich person. And then there's, there's something else that can take place here. You know there is a passage someplace in the Middle East where there's a, there's a trail that goes up and you're going up the side of a mountain and there's this rock that has grown up and over to the other side of the mountain and that's called the needle. And some people would say, you know what? He was really talking about that. Like it isn't impossible for the camel to go through on that path, but it's really difficult. He says, no. Remember what Jesus is doing in the parables? He's talking in extremes. Why would he not talk in extremes here? 
He's talking about the attitude of the heart. He says how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He's talking about the attitude of the heart. And by the way, we can have attitudes in our heart that may not have anything to do with wealth, but it is just as difficult for us to enter into kingdom as it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now Jesus is saying what appears to be the opposite concerning wealth coming only to those whom God blesses. See, the law says if you keep all these commandments, and by the way, we, we spread this into the church too. You have to be here, you have to be there, you have to be here, you have to do this, you have to do these things. If you really love God, you're going to do this and this and this and this and this. By the way, that's nothing more than an extension of the world. You, can, you, you parents who have kids in, in elementary school and junior high, I pity you. Not because of the kids, but this culture, it's all about excelling and excelling and excelling. And here's my personal opinion, not that it matters, but you know, since I have the microphone, here's my personal opinion. Let them have their childhood. You know, the truth is, when they're 37 years old, no one's going to give half of a rip what they did in reading when they were 12. Now, I don't know what I'm talking about, and I don't want to get in trouble. Kids, leave me out of your arguments with your kids, by the way, or your parents, by the way. I know nothing... But the church does the same thing, by the way. But if you're really a good Christian, if you really want to be a part of this body, where have you been? Where have you been? And by the way, I have questions for some of you. Where have you been? <laughs> Never let it be said that I don't go over the edge. According to the Jewish law, the rich ruler was doing everything right, and the proof of it was he was rich. And Jesus said, that isn't it. So that is the question. According to the Jewish law, the rich ruler was going everything right. So I must be living right now. Jesus is saying the opposite. But in reality, Jesus was really pointing out to his failure, to, the, uh, uh, to him, the failure to follow at least the first two commandments. First commandment, you shall love no other God but me. You shall not make for yourself an idol nor bow down to it or worship it. You know, he didn't say that in the first set of laws. So what Jesus is really saying is um, you, you have idols. Your God is really wealth. And that's what's keeping you out of heaven. It's not your money. It's your worship of it. So the, um, the apostles are stunned at this. They go, who can get in? Who can get in? And here's Christ's implied answer. No one. Now that takes it to a whole new level, doesn't it? Who can get in, Jesus? He looked at the Pharisees and said, unless your righteousness is above them, you can't get in. They said, well, who can be saved? He says, you know, well, here it is again. If this guy can't get in, who can get in? No one. Verse 27, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And what he's really saying there, as we look back on it, what is impossible with man is possible with through me. We see here that Peter is struggling with this. He immediately says, wait just a minute. Jesus, we have left our homes and followed you. <laughs> I can hear Jesus go, and? What's your point? But he says this, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or, or brothers or parents or children for the sake of, this, of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time. Peter, you've left your home. 
You've left your wealth. And in return, you are a billionaire. What is your point? Lord, I've sacrificed so much to be a good Christian. That's a whole other sermon, isn't it? You've sacrificed nothing. Christ sacrificed it all for you. All you've done is receive Jesus. He says, you will not receive... Those of you who have sacrificed, none of you have sacrificed for the kingdom of God that will not receive many more times in this time. Peter, right now, while you're living and you're asking these questions, you've already received more than you know. But then he goes on and he says, and the age to come, eternal life. I'm going to embarrass Al here, and I hadn't planned on doing this. It won't be tough. It won't be rough, Al. It won't be rough. See, we're we're at we we have rehearsals up here on Tuesday nights, and sometimes we get things done. But it's just a great time of fellowship, and so we we have fun and we work on things. And I just have to confess, and I know this is going to embarrass him, but you know, forgive me. Uh, sometimes you know we're playing, we're working on a new song, and I hear this sound come out over there. And uh, it sounds like ten guitars sometimes. There's a sound coming out over there, and I'm thinking, how does he come up with that? How does he come up with that melody? I hear, I hear Mark on the organ, and he, just, he plays, and it's just like he just creates kind of a bed of music. And of course, John does the boom, 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 and it all comes together, right? And I'm just thinking, of all the people up here, I need to go over there and sit down. But here's what's going to happen in heaven. It's not that Al's going to be better, I'm going to be better. We just won't care. Because now our idol isn't this or you guys. Our idol is Jesus. Point number three, and we're on time, don't worry. The Savior of the faithful. Point number one is the champion of the innocent. Point number two is the judge of the self-sufficient. Number three, Christ is the Savior of the faithful. In order for us, for this teaching to be practical for us, I have a challenge for you. I would ask that this week you jot down the many ways you have benefited from being adopted into the family of God. Some of them you have, you have so taken for granted, just like me. I take heaven for granted. You know why I take heaven for granted? It's because I know that Jesus never goes back on his word. And somehow, in all of my stupidity and all of my shortcomings and everything, he looked down upon me. He says, look at that poor boy. He has nothing. But if he receives me, I'll give him everything. And through his grace, I received him. And God's never going to take it back. I take that for granted. Do you take that for granted? When we're making all of our plans and Amherst and Illyrian... Avon and all these we're just busy, 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 busy making plans and busy making plans and achieving things and God says I'm still here so that's the first challenge I have for you make a list this week of the many ways you've benefited from being adopted into the family of God and I believe at the end of the day you will be able to list the things that the rich young ruler was craving and missed Because you have to be a believer to understand it, right? You can't be on the outside looking in and seeing what great things there are. But when you're on the inside and you experience these things, you're saying, I've taken all of that for granted. But that rich young ruler, he was dying to get there. But yet he was given something that he couldn't give up. Matthew 25, 31. So this is what Jesus says to Peter. He says, in this day right here, you're already a billionaire but also in the days to come. Matthew twenty five thirty one. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. You can read about this in the Psalms, but it's real right here. 
And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. What? What did this rich man want? How can I inherit the kingdom of heaven? And he says, You are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Long before you knew you were going to be saved, I was building your kingdom. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. When the righteous will answer him, I'm sorry, then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? For when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And this is to us. This, this is to us. And the king will answer us. Truly, I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. That's sobering. Not doing those things will keep you out of heaven if you believe, if you receive Christ. But these are the things that will be weighed and valued. Truth is, if left to our own selfish, fleshly desires, many of us would be perfectly fine if Jesus didn't interfere with our lives until we showed up on Judgment Day. Are you that? I paid my dues. I served my God. Tired. I'm done. I'm done. As long as that meant that we would not that would not be counted against us in heaven. Now, some of you might groan and say, oh, not all that. All that guilt stuff. I can't guilt you. If you've done nothing wrong, how can I guilt you? I'm nobody. May I ask you a question? Are you satisfied with your walk in Christ? Are you content with being emotionally paralyzed concerning your faith? Some of us are. Have you built your spiritual house in the center of the insulated middle class of churchdom? Are you doing anything concerning your relationship with Christ that you don't want to do? In other words, are you disciplined in your faith? If these things are true, welcome to the lukewarm church of the board. If these things are true, you're bored with your faith. Nothing excites you. Nothing prompts you. No question that you don't want to answer is answered. And if it is relevant, I challenge you to pray this prayer. I am tired of being bored in my relationship with you, Jesus. Lord, ignite a fire. In my spirit, 2 Timothy 1 says this. For this reason I remind you, my son Timothy, to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands, what that means, so that it is in you because of Jesus lives in you. For God gave us a spirit not of fear but of power and love and self-control. Verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel of the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Not through our church. Not through our works. Not through our wealth. Not through our humility. Not through our good intentions. 
through the gospel. Here's the bottom line. Jesus doesn't need us to fulfill his plan. Jesus has chosen us to be in the family as he fulfills his plan. remind you of one scripture. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you've received Christ, fan into flame the spirit that Jesus died so he could indwell you. Get off our spiritual bottoms and do something. Lord God, I have not escaped this because every word I've said, you've held up a mirror in front of me. So Lord, uh, forgive me if I've spoken too boldly. But Lord, if I haven't, then dig deep into our hearts. God, there's a lot of people in this room that have served you for a lot of years. And I don't know what they're doing right now. I don't know what their hearts are. But I know sometimes I just want to sit in my spiritual lazy boy and bask in the blessings. So, Lord, this is just an individual thing that we've heard today. You know us inside and out. So, God, I pray that your people this morning, including myself, have ears to hear. And we will rise up and be significant. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. We'd love to pray with you if you would like to have prayer. God bless you. Thanks for coming out this morning. See you next week. Prayer on Wednesday.